All right. Well, good afternoon. I hope everyone's doing well today. Today is a beautiful Lord's Day, and it's great to be together praising the Lord and uh, spending time with one another. So uh, I've been encouraged already this morning, this afternoon, rather. I hope you have too. We are in the book of Zechariah. If you have your Bibles with you, we are going to be in Zechariah chapter 4 today. Zechariah chapter 4, continuing our study of Zechariah's night visions. And this is the fifth vision And we uh, get to look at Zerubbabel, the leader, and see some important lessons from his life and what the Lord has to tell him. So in Zechariah 4, I'll read this chapter, lead us in prayer, and then we'll uh, we'll consider it together uh, and learn some important lessons about how God empowers us for service today. So let's read together. Zechariah 4, beginning in verse 1. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold with a bowl on the top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right and at the left of the lampstand. And a second time I answered and I said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the golden pipes which, from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we consider this text today. Father, we thank you for this passage before us. I pray that you would help us to understand it and to apply it. I pray that you'd enlighten our eyes to see your truth, behold your beauty. I pray that we might be encouraged and challenged as we think about uh, the empowering presence of your Holy Spirit in our midst. I pray that your spirit would be pleased to apply this text to our hearts today, to energize and strengthen us that we might be faithful and fruitful in every good work, that you would be glorified and that you would Uh, continue to bless the work of our hands in the ministries here of Redemption Bible Church. I thank you for your kindness to us in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the story, but perhaps others not so much. But around Christmas time each year, the Jewish people celebrate a festival called Hanukkah. If you've ever heard the story behind Hanukkah, it's an interesting one, and the roots of this tradition go well before the time of Christ. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus attends the Feast of Dedication, which was really another name for Hanukkah, as the Jews celebrated it in the first century. 
Well, behind, the story behind Hanukkah is this. There was a, a family uh, of Jews who were seeking to be faithful to God during a time of great oppression. The Greeks and the Syrians, uh, this is about 200 years before Christ had come, and they were forbidding the Jewish people to worship according to the law, according to the customs that they had. And so uh, a particular king named Antiochus IV Epiphanes came, and he set up pagan idols in the temple at Jerusalem, and he began to build idols and statues and altars in surrounding towns. In one particular town, the town of Modin, there was a priest named Mattathias, and he opposed this uh, pagan incursion of false worship. And so he, along with his five sons, decided they would resist, and they fled up into the mountains and began a revolt against the Greek and Syrian leaders. His family's name was Maccabeus, and you may have heard of his son, Judah Maccabeus, uh, that was an Aramaic word that meant the hammer. And he became one of the most successful generals in Jewish history. He led a revolt and was able to defeat several armies that were larger in size than the Jewish fighters. But the particular episode that surrounds Hanukkah is what happened next. Uh, Judah and his troops came into Jerusalem. They were able to cleanse the temple they were able to relight the lampstand, which the Greeks had put out, but they had a problem. They only had enough oil to burn the lampstand for one day, and they needed it to last eight days until supplies could come. And so they filled the bowl with oil, and they lit it, and as they record it, uh, that lamp continued to burn for eight days until the supplies came to relieve them. And so they dedicated that time to the Lord. It became known as the Feast of Dedication, or as we know it, as Hanukkah. And it was a time in which they realized that when God provides the resources, God's people can do what he's called them to do. And this is a lesson that we'll learn from the passage this morning. If we could reduce it, I think, to one sentence, it would be this. Only God can equip and empower you to serve faithfully and effectively. Only God can equip and empower you to serve faithfully and effectively. And I think this is a message that we need to hear in our church today in America. Because I think as Americans, we probably are susceptible to a temptation to think because we're well-to-do, because we're resourceful, because we have all these resources at our disposal, that anything we put our minds to, we can accomplish if we just work really hard, and if we just use the right skills and have the right effective tools, if we're well-trained and all these sorts of things. And God comes to Zerubbabel in the midst of a great project to rebuild the temple, and he says, it's not through your power, it's not through your strength, it's not through your creativity and ingenuity, but only through my spirit that you will be empowered to finish the task he's called you to do. And so the lesson for us this afternoon as well is, rather than putting faith in our own human efforts and works and diligence and ingenuity, we need to trust that God will move in our midst that his spirit will be pleased to work in the lives of people who come to hear his word and participate together in the life of this congregation, and that through his spirit, he will animate us and energize us for effective service. Only God can equip and empower us to serve faithfully and effectively. So as we get into it uh, this afternoon, let me uh, 
see if I can get this going. All right, we've come first to this character of Zerubbabel, and we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on here. So Zerubbabel will be the main character, and he may be a bit obscure to us unless you are well-versed in a lot of Old Testament history. Perhaps you've heard the name Zerubbabel, but uh, perhaps he seems a little bit distant or strange, or uh, who is this guy? So let's talk a little bit about who Zerubbabel is. Zerubbabel had a very important lineage. He was uh, the grandson of the last sort of legitimate king of Judah, King Jehoiakim. So he comes from a royal pedigree, but he was born in Babylon. He was born in exile probably around 575, sometime after 575 B.C., so his formative years, his, his young years were spent in Babylon, and he came of age there in Babylon. But in his mid-30s or so, he would lead one of the first returns back to Jerusalem. So he was uh, designated as an administrative political leader. He would lead a group of Jewish people back to Jerusalem, and he would begin to live there. And if you recall some of the uh, chronology and history here, they had come back to the land about 20 years before Zechariah's prophecies are taking place. So this is around 519 B.C. And so uh, Zerubbabel is probably in his mid-50s at this point. You can kind of imagine, you may be younger than that, you may be older than that, but as you're reaching those, that middle part of, of your 50s, you begin perhaps to wonder, you know, psychologists might call it a midlife crisis, what is God doing and is he going to accomplish his tasks here through us? And perhaps Zerubbabel was just a bit discouraged by the opposition they were facing. Remember that as they tried to rebuild the walls and the temple, there were all sorts of opposition from enemies in the area. There were impediments. There were financial constraints. There were all these things that were adding up to make it very difficult to finish the task. This is why Haggai the prophet came right before Zechariah, and Haggai said, you need to keep building. Don't give up. Don't lose heart because God's going to bless you if you build his house. And so Haggai encouraged them to that end, and so Zerubbabel and Joshua were key instrumental in that process, and so Zerubbabel would be a key part of those who would be uh, instrumental in finishing the temple. Now, I've talked a little bit about the structure of these eight night visions, so if you have that in mind, let me just say a word about that here. The fourth and the fifth visions, we looked at the fourth vision last time, that was the vision of Joshua the high priest being cleansed and uh, given new garments. And this one with Zerubbabel are really, I think, the two most important visions in a way. The reason I say that is these two come at the center of the structure of the eight visions, and whatever is at the center is usually the most important when there's a parallelism like what we see here. It's called a staircase parallelism, or the fancy word is a chiasm. And what this means is the fourth and the fifth are central and are the most important for interpreting what's happening. Now, why are these so important? Because they're looking at the two leaders who will lead the nation to successful completion of the temple. If we zoom out even a bit and we remember that God's uh, purpose here is to animate his people so that they can finish the temple, not just so that they have a pretty building to look at in Jerusalem, but so God's presence can be in their midst. This was the goal of really... All humanity is to dwell with God and to have him dwell in our midst. And so this temple was going to be important for a number of reasons. God's presence 
would be there, but also this was the temple that the Messiah was going to come to. The Lord Jesus himself would walk on the steps and in the portico and teach crowds at this very temple. So it was important that they finish the temple so that God could accomplish his purposes. He was going to bring the Messiah and he was going to bless his people. So they had to finish this temple. And so he focuses on these two leaders because they will be key, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel. Now, there are a lot of other things I could add to this. There are a number of reasons why these two visions are really important. They both deal with holy things associated with the temple. Last time it was Joshua the high priest. Here it's the lampstand. The lampstand becomes key. And I'm going to talk a lot today about what did the lampstand signify? Why was this an important piece of furniture in the tabernacle and temple? It was very important. So I'll uh, tell you why that's the case. Both of these visions mention historical persons that actually lived. Uh, we actually have archaeological evidence uh, of some of Zerubbabel's sons. He had a daughter named Shelemith, and they've discovered in Jerusalem a seal that mentions Shelemith. And so these are attested people who actually lived during this time, and uh, these visions address these historical persons. And then both deal with both the temple and with the coming Messiah. Both have a strong messianic orientation. Now what I've uh, mentioned as we've gone through these visions is that each one seems to point to the Lord Jesus, the coming Messiah, in a certain way. He may be a character in the vision. Remember the man on the red horse? He uh, was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he was a central character in that vision. There was also the vision with the man with the measuring line, and we saw that that likely was uh, again, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ because we know Jesus as a carpenter uh, is building Jerusalem and renovating it. But the Lord Jesus is also a character in other ways. Last time he was the angel of the Lord before whom they stood as the divine council scene unfolded. And here he's perhaps a bit in the background, but I'm going to make the case as we walk through this that he actually is represented in these two olive trees. These two olive trees, I think, as I'll uh, point to later, look at the offices of priest and king, which the Lord Jesus will perfectly exemplify. We see that in Zechariah 6. We see that in Psalm 110. Jesus is the perfect priest and the perfect king. Uh, right now, he intercedes for us as a priest on high, Hebrews 7 tells us. And when he returns, he will be the king who sits on his uh, Father David's throne and reigns from Jerusalem. So these olive trees, in a way, represent how he provides the spirit to empower God's people to accomplish his tasks. And so all of these things are important. And uh, Vision 5 uh, deals with the, the building of the temple and its completion. And so Zerubbabel is front and center. One more thing to say about this. I think there is also an important aspect to keep in mind as we think of the sequence of these visions. What do I mean by that? Well, last time, the key of the vision was the cleansing of Joshua. And here it's the empowering of Zerubbabel. And I don't think that's accidental. I think what that hints at is the fact that for us to be effective in serving the Lord, we first need to have our sins cleansed and forgiven. That is to say, if we're going to serve the Lord effectively, the very first step is to be made right with God, to have his blessing upon our lives because our sins are forgiven. We've been cleansed 
from the filth of our sin. We've been renewed and regenerated. We've been made right with God and justified in his presence. And so Joshua is spiritually cleansed. And now Zerubbabel is divinely empowered to accomplish this task. And so these two go hand in hand. God first uh, outfits us for service by cleansing us from our sins. And then he empowers us for, by, for service by providing the power of his spirit to accomplish his tasks. All right, and then one other word before we dive into the details here, and that is that the uh, symbolism here is a bit difficult to understand. And if you have a, a different version, it may render it in different ways. Uh, one of the key things is understanding how the lampstand here is pictured, and then understanding how the numbers are used. As I read through the ESV, it talked about seven and seven, that there are uh, seven uh, conduits or pipes and then seven lips in the lampstand. Other versions render that as 14. There's one particular version, the Net Bible, that says 14. And one commentator suggests we should actually translate it as 49. So there are different views as to what is going on here. But I think the important part is to understand that two things are integral. The lampstand, which represents God's presence, and the olive tree, which represents God's empowerment, his, uh, we could say, renewable source of energy that's going to keep the lampstand lit. So the focal points are the lampstand. We want to keep our eyes on that and what God is doing and representing with that. And then how the olive tree feeds into that. And we'll see both uh, become important. Ultimately, this will be a picture of God's presence through his Holy Spirit. His Spirit gives strength, energy, power, to his leaders so that they can effectively serve Joshua and Zerubbabel. So if we put all this together, the, the point of the passage is this. God is going to restore his presence among his people. He's going to do it through the Holy Spirit. He's going to help the leaders to complete the construction of the sanctuary, the temple. And then the governor, King Zerubbabel, is going to prefigure the coming Messiah. That is to say, he foreshadows what God is going to do when the Messiah comes. And so all these things come together uh, in these vision sequences. So beginning in verse 1, we're going to consider this in more detail now. The first point is this, those who lead God's people need God's power. Those who lead God's people need God's power. Uh, this is a good reminder, if you're like me, I'm the sort of person that likes to just dive in and get a job done, get a task completed. Uh, sometimes I've been known to even write things on my to-do list just so I can cross them off and feel good about accomplishing something. But here, what God reminds us is that God's leaders need and are dependent on God's power. We should never think that in our own strength we can accomplish the things God calls us to do as believers and Christians because we're utterly dependent on God's power to be faithful in the task he's given us to do. All right, so look with me at verse 1. It says here, the angel who talked with me came again. Now, at the risk of being repetitive, this angel is really focused upon, and, and it almost seems repetitive how many times the text tells us that the angel who talks with Zechariah comes to him or, or says something and, and repeats something to him. And he has a tendency within this passage to say, don't you understand what this is? Or don't you know what this is? There's almost a bit of a chiding at times on the part of the angel where he uh, tells Zerubbabel, you're of a priestly line 
uh, tells rather Zechariah, you should understand what these symbols mean. And so here he comes and he begins to talk to Zechariah. And we have to kind of understand what's happening in verse 1. It says he, he woke me in the ESV like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. Now, one question we might consider here is, does this mean that Zechariah had dozed off and he's now sleeping on the sidelines and an angel has to come and wake him up? The ESV translation suggests that that might be a way to understand what's happening. But I don't actually think that's the best way to understand what's going on. I think rather there is a word here used that's very important because it ties back to the book of of Haggai, and I'll explain that in a minute. It really says here that he was like a man who was awakened out of his sleep, not that he was awakened out of his sleep. What may have happened here is that Zechariah, as he's contemplating what he's seen so far, and remember this fantastic vision that we looked at last time where he's transported to the divine council? It may be that Zechariah is almost in a trance-like state as he considers the magnitude of what God has done through Joshua the high priest. And in light of that, he sort of sinks into this meditative state and an angel has to come to rouse him, to uh, awaken him or get him moving and animated. And the word here really literally is he He stirred me up or he roused me, and this is the same word used in Haggai chapter 1. If you want to turn there, you can, but I'll read this verse in Haggai chapter 1 and verse 14. A very key verse in the book of Haggai talks about the effect of Haggai's ministry. It says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. In that text, we see that Haggai's ministry actually was effective in fostering a revival among the people. And that same word, to stir up the Spirit, is used here. It says, the angel literally stirred me up. He he roused me. He energized me. He woke me up. When we talk about the work of the Spirit, we often use the terminology of an awakening. When the Spirit moves, often it awakens us to our need for God's presence our need for his forgiveness, our need for a relationship with him. And this is the effect that the angel has here, that Zechariah's spirit is stirred up. He awakens to the fact that he is going to see something that is instrumental in God's purposes for his people in this time. When I think of the ministry of the spirit, I'm often uh, reminded of a book uh, written by a man named A.J. Gordon, Uh, called the Ministry of the Holy Spirit. A.J. Gordon was a pastor in the Boston area in the 19th century. At one time, his church, Clarendon Street Baptist Church, was one of the most dynamic and growing churches in America during a time that was called the Second Great Awakening uh, in the United States. And he was called into ministry, converted at the age of 15, called into ministry, went to seminary, and then he became the pastor of Clarendon Street Church for many years. He told the story once of a friend of his who had taken a, an Englishman to see Niagara Falls. This Niagara Falls used to be uh, a great place to come and see. Perhaps it's not as, as highly thought of uh, today. A lot of people like to go out west to national parks. But in the early history of America, going to Niagara Falls was sort of 
a big deal. And so this American gentleman took this English gentleman to Niagara Falls and he said, I want to show you the greatest source of unused power in the world. He took him to the foot of Niagara Falls and he says, this here, all this energy, all this power coming over the falls is the greatest unused source of power in the world. And the Englishman replied to him, my brother, that's not the case. The greatest unused power in the world today is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And sometimes I think we forget that God's power, because it's sometimes invisible to us, is actually the greatest power at work in the world today. The gospel is advancing. Men and women and children are coming to know the Lord, having their lives changed, and the power of God is at work in the world today. Ephesians 5.18, in fact, commands us to be filled with the Spirit. I think a good way of understanding that is to be governed, led, influenced by, controlled by the Spirit so that our lives reflect God's character. And so the Spirit is to be evident in our lives. All right, so the angel wakes him up. The angel comes to him and and uh, rouses him from his stupor, and he asks him a question. He says to him, what do you see? Notice Zechariah says, I see a lampstand made of gold. And then he describes it, seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps. All right, what is this exactly that he sees? It's a lampstand of some sort, and here's Here's the part of the message where I'll get a, a little more technical, so uh, hopefully I'll be able to explain it well and everyone can stay with me. But he sees a golden lampstand. Now, when we think of a lampstand, we probably picture in our minds that smaller illustration to the right uh, of a golden lampstand that looks like what we would call a menorah. When we think about the lampstand, Exodus 25 gave Moses a lot of instructions on how to build this lampstand, and it was to be placed inside the tabernacle and then later inside the temple. Now, what exactly was the lampstand intended to represent? Well, the priests would minister inside the tabernacle where the lampstand was. It was situated on the south side in the holy place. So if you've seen diagrams in a study Bible, uh, there were three parts of the tabernacle and temple. There was the outer part where worshipers would come. There was a holy place where the priests could go. And then there was the holy of holies or the most holy place. No one could go in there except the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. That was where the Lord himself dwelt. In the holy place, just outside the curtain, the lampstand was situated. Now, a lot of scholars have written on this, and I'm uh, persuaded that I think this is the case, that the lampstand likely represented the tree of life. It was sort of like a stylized tree of life, and the fact that it was lit represented the fact that God's presence was to be with his people. In fact, if you get into the technicalities of it, Exodus 25 describes how the lights of the lampstand were actually oriented toward the bread, which was across the room on the bread of presence table. So there was a table with 12 loaves. The lamp actually shined on those loaves. Now, what did that represent? The fact that God's gracious favor and presence was to shine upon his people. Now, when we go to the New Testament, we know that Jesus takes this imagery of himself. He says uh, in, in the beginning of the gospel, it says, in him, that is in Jesus, was life 
and the life was the light of men. And Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. And so the lampstand represented God's presence, and Jesus perfectly exemplifies that. John 1 tells us that uh, we can't see God, uh, but we have seen Jesus. He's come and tabernacled among us. Now, here's the part where I get a little technical. Most of the time when we think about the lampstand, we picture a menorah. But the reality is, archaeologists never have discovered a lampstand that looks like a menorah earlier than about 200 BC. And remember, Zechariah is three centuries before that. So almost certainly, the actual lampstand that he would have seen would have looked like this reconstructed one that looks more like a freestanding bathroom vanity of sorts uh, with a pedestal and a base and then lamps around it. So this is kind of how it worked. There would be lips around the bowl, oil would be poured in the center bowl, and that oil would fuel the lamps that were lit, and so the light would be oriented in such a way that the lampstand would continue burning. And so I think when Zechariah sees this, he sees something like this that's made of gold with oil in the reservoir or in the bowl. Now, the challenge with that is he also sees two olive trees. So I've never yet been able to find a perfect illustration, but this sort of tries to combine those two ideas. So let me try to explain what's going on. There's a bowl with oil there are pipes coming from olive trees that pour into the bowl, and from the bowl or reservoir goes oil to light the seven lamps which are on this lampstand. The idea that we're supposed to see here is that this is renewable energy that never runs out, it's never exhausted, it's fully sufficient, and it helps to animate or energize God's servants. Now what's interesting about this is in verse Number two here, the word seven actually appears three times. Now, this is obscured by a lot of English translations, but the number seven is repeated three times, and I think it's significant. It's significant because seven is the number of perfection and completion. It often represents the Lord in Scripture, and the number three also is key. It relates, of course, to the Trinity, but the, the persons of God, the three persons of the Holy Trinity. And so seven and three, what this represents is God's divine presence is being poured into this reservoir in order to energize his servants, uh, particularly here as a rubble. Notice then he also sees in verse three, there are two olive trees, one on the right and one on the left. And they begin to talk about these olive trees. Now, I don't know if anyone's seen an olive tree. We don't really have them around here. The climate's not quite right for them. If you ever go to Israel, uh, you'll see a lot of olive trees all over the place. In fact, uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll likely walk up the hill next to Jerusalem toward uh, Mount Scopus, uh, where Gethsemane is located the night uh, Jesus and his disciples spent there. And it's named there for the olive grove and olive press that was part of that area of Gethsemane. So olive trees are all over the place in Israel, and they represent some important things. They were vital to life. They produced oil that, that fed and also lighted houses and other things. And within the temple, they were very important. In the first temple, 1 Kings 6 tells us that Solomon built two cherubim, cherubim that were 15 feet high, 
made of olive wood, and they were guardians that guarded God's sacred presence. And so these stood inside the temple and guarded God's sacred presence. There's been a lot of discussion about what these two olive trees here represent. I'm not going to go through all those different views, but I think uh, the best view is the own explanation that the text gives. You'll notice the very last verse of this chapter says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And I think what this is saying is the two offices of these visions, that is the office of governor king, represented by Zerubbabel, and Joshua the high priest, that is the priest and the king, they represent... God's work and his Messiah who's going to provide the, the energy and uh, zeal to accomplish his tasks. Now here's one issue though. Zerubbabel and Joshua, even though they're the leaders anointed by God, are still imperfect leaders. They're still susceptible to failure. We saw last time that Joshua, some of his own uh, descendants, would later intermarry with pagan women. And so these men weren't necessarily always faithful to the Lord, but they represented someone who would be. And I think the ultimate prefigurement here, the ultimate symbol is the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus himself. He will perfectly exemplify both priest and king. And moreover, it's the Lord Jesus himself who gives the Spirit to energize us to accomplish his task. How do I know that? Well, Jesus himself is very clear on this. If you ever want to spend some time studying this out, I would highly recommend reading what we call the Upper Room Discourse. This is John 14 to 16, where Jesus describes how when he goes, he will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will provide all that's needed to faithfully follow Jesus and to obey his commands. I want to just read a couple texts here from that upper room discourse. In John 14, verses 16 and 17, John 14, 16 and 17, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Later on, he says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And then what I think is one of the most remarkable texts in the New Testament, it's really amazing to me, he says this, it is to your advantage that I go away. He tells the disciples, it's actually better for you if I leave. And they're probably thinking, how is that possible? He goes on to say, because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So I think what we see here is a picture of how Joshua and Zerubbabel prefigure somewhat imperfectly, but nonetheless, they prefigure the coming Messiah who will be the perfect priest and the perfect king who will supply the spirit to the covenant community the Holy Spirit will empower us and transform us so that we can faithfully and effectively serve the Lord. So this is a beautiful picture of how God is going to accomplish his tasks, his purposes, all these things, because he will supply the needed resources. We're not on our own. Sometimes it feels like we're laboring and no one notices and we're not doing a very good job and we're 
falling short, we're sinners, all these things are true, but what this vision is telling us is that God supplies the resources. God supplies the means to accomplish his tasks. So this brings us to the second point, and these other points will go more quickly, I promise. All right, verses four to six, God's power comes only through the Holy Spirit. God's power comes only through the Holy Spirit. Notice verse four, the angel comes back uh, and Zechariah says to him, what are these, my Lord? He's asking for an explanation. Then the angel uh, says, don't you know what these are? And he says, no, my Lord. And then verse six, he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not, my, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So the Lord will provide the means necessary to faithfully uh, accomplish the tasks. And so this leads us to seven promises that the Lord makes to Zerubbabel. These will be uh, brief but important, seven promises. The first is this, beginning in verse 5, 6 rather, and following. The first promise is the temple will be built through divine empowerment. The temple will be built through divine empowerment. They're not on their own. God will provide the resources. Notice verse 6. Uh, this is one of my favorite verses in the book, and I think it's a, a powerful one. He says, this is the, Lord, the word of the Lord, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel and Joshua can't do this on their own. They need the Lord to empower them. They need the Lord to strengthen them. And in a sense, this is a picture, I think, that can be encouraging to all of us. We're, when we try to serve the Lord, how often don't we realize that we simply can't do it in our own strength? When it comes to evangelizing other people, we can't make them believe in the Lord Jesus. We can't regenerate them. We can't uh, make people want to follow the Lord. Who can do that? Well, God can. And through his spirit, he will enable his servants to work faithfully and effectively, and he will enable us to accomplish that. I think it's really interesting when we get to the New Testament, there are three words for power, strength, and might that are used, and these three words occur 175 times in the New Testament. The New Testament is a very long portion of Scripture. It's only a quarter of all the Bible, and yet words for power occur almost 200 times. And the point here is that God will help us to accomplish what he calls us to do. One text that comes to mind is Colossians 1, 10, and 11. It says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and impatience with joy. So God will enable us to accomplish what he calls us to do. The second promise there is that uh, the impediments will be removed. Every impediment and obstacle to the work will be removed. Notice it says here, Who are you, in verse 7, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. The idea here is there's a mountain that probably represents all the challenges and adversities and impediments that Zerubbabel is facing. We use language like this is really an uphill battle. And what we mean by that is, the, the opposition is strong, and it's going to take a lot of effort to accomplish this. But what I think is being said here is that ultimately, Zerubbabel will be successful, but it's because God will do the work of removing the obstacles. 
This comes to fruition, of course, in the Gospel of Luke, where John the Baptist refers to a prophecy in Isaiah that says something along these lines, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, the rough places shall become level, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. The point is, sort of like a bulldozer will come through and will flatten the land so that there's no longer an impediment to accomplishing what God wants to do, his work. And this is, again, a great encouragement to us, right? Sometimes it seems like the task we have to do as a church is insurmountable. How will we ever have the resources we need to accomplish what God is calling us to do? How can we reach our city with the gospel? How can we be faithful as a witness in this community? And God says, he will provide the resources. He will help us overcome those obstacles. The third promise here is that the temple will successively be, successfully be completed. There will be joy and gladness when the temple is finished. Notice at the end of verse 7, it says that he will bring forward the capstone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Now, what is this about? This is a bit obscure, perhaps, uh, to understand what's being said here. But the idea is Zerubbabel, who started it, is, is also going to be involved in finishing it, and he's going to bring out this capstone. It means that in a little while, it's going to be finished, and Zerubbabel will be there to finish it. The word used here, I think, is important, this idea of bringing forward. It's a Hebrew word that's used a hundred times in the Exodus event for God bringing out his people. God brings out his people, and Zerubbabel, like a second Moses, is going to bring out this stone that will finish the temple. And so Zerubbabel, he in a way was a second Moses. He brought the people from captivity back into the land and now he's going to be involved in the finishing product. And they'll be saying grace, grace to it. This word grace means beauty, elegance. In other words, when it's completed, it's going to be a beautiful building that honors the Lord and brings glory to his name. But he goes on from there with a few other promises. And this brings us to our third and final point, that is God's power enables God's servants to fulfill his tasks. God's power enables God's servants to fulfill his tasks. The fourth promise here is that Zerubbabel himself will finish the job. Zerubbabel himself will finish the work. Notice how he says here, the word of the Lord in verse 8 came, Verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation. His hands also shall complete it. As I said at the beginning, Zerubbabel is, is there, and he's probably in his mid-50s at this point. They started the temple nearly two decades ago, and he may be wondering, is it really going to happen within my lifetime? Is the Lord really going to finish this job, or is it going to be someone else later after I've died that gets to complete it. The Lord says, no, Zerubbabel started it. He will finish it. And there's a lesson, I think, to, to take from this, to draw from this, and that is that God will accomplish his work through us uh, in the time in which he designates to do it. As we serve the Lord, there may be moments in our lives where we wonder, is God really through with me? Am, am I finished? Is there anything more for me to do? And I would encourage you today that God will complete the work he intends you to do, and moreover, he will finish his work in you. We don't know how long we're given on earth, but we know that God will complete the work 
he intends to do through us. So be encouraged today that God will be at work in your life through uh, all your life to the very end. This brings us to the fifth promise. The fifth promise is that Zerubbabel uh, will see a, a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And so I could say it this way, the word will be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. Notice what he says next. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. This is very similar to an earlier phrase that we looked at in an earlier vision. And if you recall, I kind of talked about it's, it's uh, phrased in a way that's a bit strange because the Lord is sending the Lord. And that's also the case here. And what I think this is saying is that what Zerubbabel is doing is not just for the here and now. It's ultimately for God's purposes of bringing the Messiah into the world. This is the very temple where Jesus himself will walk and teach. And so as Zerubbabel is working, he should do so knowing that God will accomplish great purposes. He'll bring the Messiah himself in a few centuries to walk the steps of this very temple. This brings us to the sixth promise, verse 10. It says here, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. I would phrase it this way, that the, the six promises, critics of the work will be silenced. The critics of the work will be silenced. Uh, the word despise here, whoever has despised the day of small things, those who look down with scorn on what God is doing will ultimately be silenced of their criticism, and that will be turned instead to joy. They will rejoice. And I think this is an allusion to uh, some earlier episodes. Remember in Ezra 3, when they lay the foundation of the temple, there's a mixture of joy and sorrow. Some are shouting for joy, and it says others, I'll read the text here, it says, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. In other words, they knew what the first temple looked like. They knew the glory and grandeur of Solomon's temple. And this, by comparison, seemed a pitiable little structure. How could this glorify the God of the universe when it's such a small temple? And so they were sorrowful when they saw it. And Haggai himself alludes to this. He says, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And let me just say this, I think there's a temptation sometimes to wonder, is God really at work in such a small little section, a small corner of the universe? Does God really notice the things that we do here? Is God really pleased and at work in our midst? Because sometimes it seems we labor unrewarded in obscurity, and we wonder, is God really at work here? My answer to that is, yes, he is. And I'm reminded of a story I came across recently uh, of a, a woman named Kitty Suffield. Kitty Suffield. Let me just tell you her story, and uh, I think it would be encouraging. She was born in New York City at the end of the 19th century in 1884, and she aspired to be an opera singer or a concert pianist. She was very gifted musically. And as she uh, pursued different opportunities, it didn't really work out, and she was really beginning to wonder what the Lord had in store for her. 
Well, one winter she was traveling by train across Canada and the train hit a blizzard. It was so bad that the conductor couldn't go any farther and he hopped off the train and he began to look at the nearby houses to see if he could find shelter for the passengers because he was afraid that they would freeze to death in this storm. He knocked on the house nearby and it was answered by a, name, a man named Fred uh, and he offered to let the people, the passengers, come into his house and spend the night. And so they did, and Kitty was one of those passengers, and she wrote him later a thank you note. And he responded, and they began a correspondence, which eventually led to romance and an eventual marriage. And so she moved to Canada to be with Fred, and he became a traveling evangelist. He was a Christian minister and preacher, and he would go around to small churches in Ontario and other parts of Canada, and he would preach messages, and uh, often Kitty would play songs and sing along with him. In fact, one of the people that they encouraged to get into music was the son of a pastor, uh, a man named George Beverly Shea. Perhaps you've heard of him. He would eventually go into church music as a result of their influence. Well, Kitty, as she ministered in these churches, would often wonder, is God really doing something, or are we just working in obscurity? And so she put a pen to paper, and she wrote a hymn in 1924 to try to uh, work this out in her own mind. And these are the lyrics of the hymn she wrote. Does the place you're called to labor seem too small and little known? It is great if God is in it, and he'll not forget his own. Little is much when God is in it. Labor not for wealth or fame. There's a crown and you can win it if you go in Jesus' name. There is a crown for us and little is much when God is in it. So be encouraged by that this afternoon. This brings us then to the final, the seventh promise, and that is this. The Lord himself will rejoice over the completion of the work. The Lord himself. Notice uh, the verse says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. In other words, the Lord himself sees and knows. These seven eyes represent his omniscient knowledge, his complete understanding. He sees and he knows. So the contrast is if you think you're working in obscurity, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere and they see everything. And so nothing escapes his notice. And then 11 to 12 bring us then to the final portion of the oracle here. And uh, he here describes what these olive trees are. Notice in verse 11, these are the two olive trees at the right and left. And he says, these are the ones that provide the oil to fill the lampstand and he ends by saying, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. What is this talking about? Well, I think, again, what he's saying is Zerubbabel will be empowered by God to accomplish his task and that these two olive trees represent the coming Messiah, the perfect priest and king who will give his spirit and will rule and minister as a mediator for his people. And so Zerubbabel, like Joshua, if he's faithful to his task, he will represent the coming Messiah who's going to perfectly fulfill God's intention and provide the Holy Spirit for his people to minister. And so Zerubbabel has a very primary place in representing the coming Messiah. This brings us then to application. And let me just 
uh, end with a few principles that I think will help us as we consider this passage. Number one, I would say this, understand that God will equip and empower you to do the tasks he's called you to do. If God has called you to do something, he will provide the resources that you need to accomplish his tasks. And it's not because we're particularly clever. It's not because we're more skilled than others. Remember, 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that God calls the lowly, not the powerful and rich and mighty and intelligent and all those things. God calls the lowly of the world so that he might receive the glory. So if he's called you to do a task, he will equip and empower you to do it. Secondly, know that the work that you do is ultimately for the Lord. It's for his glory. It's not for our glory. I think as Americans, we often approach things as we make decisions on the basis of what will make me happy? What will make me feel fulfilled? And uh, I think of a quote of C.S. Lewis where he says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures. When infinite joy is offered to us, we're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. When we work for God's glory, that is the ultimate satisfaction. We're created to glorify God, and so ultimately it brings him glory. And then lastly, recognize that God will bring the work to completion. He's going to accomplish what he intends to accomplish, and so we can rest secure that he will provide the resources and he will bring it to completion. You may be at a point in your life where you're wondering some of the things I've said today. Is God really at work here? Am I laboring in obscurity? Does anybody notice what I'm doing? I don't feel like the Lord really is, is rewarding the work or that I'm really being effective or uh, that he's using me. Let me encourage you today that God will supply the resources. He's at work even when we can't see it. He will bring his purposes to completion. He will be glorified in what he calls us to do. Only God can equip and empower you to serve faithfully and effectively. Little is much when God is in it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage today. We thank you for your kindness to us and for your grace. We thank you that you've lavished the riches of Christ upon us through salvation. I pray that we'd be encouraged today as we think about the uh, tasks ahead of us that you've called us to do, that you provide the resources, the power, the strength, the, the grace that we need to be faithful and effective and fruitful. And so we ask for your blessing to that end. I pray that you'd help us to apply this text and to be glorifying you as we seek to serve you faithfully and effectively, Lord. Use us to that end so that one day in eternity we can look back and rejoice at how wonderful it is that you chose to use us to accomplish your tasks. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.